Do you doubt that promise? He will meet you there. He's met me there time and time again, and I'm thankful this morning that that's been the case. Got good news for us this morning. Good news that I'd like to share with you. We're going to just focus on that good news that the Word of God has to share with us about the very God that we serve today. Greetings in Jesus' name. We're looking forward to a day of worship, a day of fellowship, a day of being a blessing to the kingdom of God. Before we begin, I'd like to ask Brother Trent Graybill to lead us in prayer, please. Let's all rise and we'll pray. Our Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for one more day. Please forget that it's a miracle. And thank you for saving each one of us. And thank you for this opportunity. And just pray that you would continue to be with us today. Open our hearts. Continue to give us understanding with what we're learning. And with understanding wisdom. And Lord Jesus, just thank you for being here, being among us, and just keeping us because we can't do it on our own. We need your help. Thank you, Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I want to do a little exercise before we commence this morning. And I'd like to just have a little help from you as we do that. And so I'm going to pick out, uh, let's see, Jordan, I'm going to pick you out, Jordan Turner. And I want you to turn to the first chapter of Matthew. And Sarah, why don't you turn to the first chapter of Mark. And let's jump back over here. And Dustin, you turn to the first chapter of Luke. And let's see, uh, Christy, let's have you turn to the first chapter of John. And you can turn there too if you'd like to. But as we look at the gospel messages, Jordan, I'd like for you to read right there at the first chapter of Matthew, right above where it says chapter 1 in your Bible, what does it say? Read, read this right here. The Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew. Okay. Mark chapter 1, right above chapter 1, Sarah. What does it say? The Gospel according to St. Mark. Mark. Okay, Dustin, what does your Bible say right above the first chapter of Luke? The Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke. And what does your Bible say right above the first chapter of John? The Gospel according to John. Now, that's pretty elementary. It's a very elementary exercise. But did you notice that in every one of those four readings, it said the Gospel? It said the Gospel. Could somebody tell me this morning, what does the word Gospel mean? Good news. It means good news. The Gospel means good news. Now, I want to ask you some more questions. 
Do you believe that when the Bible says it's the gospel, that it is good news? Do you believe that? Yes, we believe that. We believe when the Bible says it's the gospel, we believe that it's good news. Okay, the next question. Do you believe the gospels are inspired? Yes, we do. It means they're given by God. The Spirit of God breathed the gospel message to humanity. Next question. This is a bit logical, but just think about this, philosophically if you would. But the question is, could there be good news if there was no goodness from which it emanated? There could be no good news if there was no goodness from which this good news emanated. Okay, now, final question. If this is good news given by God, and if goodness exists, then do you believe this morning that God is good? If you believe that this morning, if you believe that God is good, I'd like to see you raise your hand. God is good. Thank you. God is good. The Bible tells us that over and over and over again. And yet this morning, there are so many individuals who fail to just embrace that precious truth of Scripture, that God is good. And I know there are many individuals in this world today who have become jaded because of broken relationships in the past. There are individuals who find it very challenging, almost impossible, extremely difficult to believe that God is good because of the way they've suffered mistreatment in the past. And I believe this morning that because I'm looking at a group of 31 young people right here in our midst, there are young people this morning who are challenged by the fact that God is good. But let me say emphatically that the Bible says this over and over and over again. It says it in many different contexts. It says it in many different ways. Let's embrace the truth of the Word of God this morning and emphasize that God is good. That's the title of our message. God is good. Let's turn to three scriptures. Psalms 33. As we focus on the Word of God and and see what God's Word has to say to us about God being good. Psalm 33, verses 1 through 5. Rejoice in the Lord, O ye righteous, for praise is comely for the upright. Praise the Lord with harp, sing unto Him with the psaltery and an instrument of ten strings. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud noise. For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Just hang on to that last phrase. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Now let's turn to Romans chapter 2. We're going to read some things in Romans chapter 2, and we're just going to read four verses here. But we're going to read some things in the fourth part of Romans 2 that really aren't very pleasant to read. 
But this is the context of Scripture. Let's just think about what the Scripture tells us in Romans 2, verses 1 through 4. Thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest. For wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Now just hang on to that question that's asked us in verse 4. And finally, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 7. Remember, God is good. Verse 7, 2 Thessalonians 1. You who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in the saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also... We pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of His goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in Him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The fact that God is good is an extremely strong emphasis in Scripture. The attributes of God are many. And they're portrayed to us in various passages of Scripture. But this fact that God, that God is good, this attribute of God, His goodness, is portrayed to us over and over in a multitude of contexts. I want to just cite you to the book of Psalms. We're not going to turn to these passages. But in the writings of the the psalmist, there are about five different times that the psalmist makes a statement very similar to this. I'm going to turn to one of them. You don't have to do that. but But it's stated over and over again, this same truth in Scripture. Especially in the Psalms. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord. For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. You will find that quotation verbatim five different times in the book of Psalms. And you will find that quotation in similar tones a multitude of other times. But give thanks this morning unto the Lord, for He is good. For His mercy endureth forever. Well, as we think about the attribute of God, the fact that God is good, 
I want to break this message down as we've done hitherto into about three different segments or three different focuses. One of those is that His goodness is manifested in His providence. The second one is that His goodness is manifested in His promises. And finally, His goodness is manifested in His power. And I'll explain that third one a little bit later as we get to it. The goodness of God manifests to us in a variety of ways in Scripture. God's goodness manifested in His providence. That first portion of Scripture that we read, Psalms 33, speak to us about the goodness of God being manifested in His providence. Remember what the psalmist says in verse 5 of this 33rd chapter of Psalms? He says, The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Everywhere we look, we can see if we want to discern the goodness of the Lord. We can see the goodness of the Lord emphasized in His creation. We can see the goodness of the Lord emphasized in the redemption of His people. We can see the goodness of the Lord emphasized as we fellowship and enjoy sweet communion with the people of God. We can, we can see the goodness of God emphasized to us as we commune with Him in our closets, in our devotions. We see the goodness of God manifest to us. The goodness of God manifests to us. But let's think about His goodness manifested in His providence. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. The fact that the psalmist says that the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord, we cannot remove that fact. We cannot evade it. It's certainly a fact that the psalmist says the earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. This is the inspired Word of God. It's God-breathed. We know it to be true. But I'd like for us to just think about something else here as we think about this psalm, as we think about these five verses in Psalm 33. This psalm tells us that there is a response that the individual will will, um, emit as he recognizes the fact that the earth is full of the goodness of God. As he recognizes the fact that the God that we serve is a God who is good. One response, as the psalmist defines it here, is that men and women will rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord, he says. Rejoice. That means that with the deepest recesses of our hearts, we have a sense of serenity. We have a sense of peace because we are joying in the Lord. We have rejoicing in our heart. Rejoicing in the Lord. But the psalmist says that the, the person of God, the, the child of God, the righteous, as he defines it here, the righteous will recognize that there's more that God, that God wants than to just simply rejoice in our hearts. He wants a result in our lives that's visible and audible to other individuals. He says that more than just simply rejoicing, God wants us to give Him praise. We rejoice in our hearts and we give God praise. Praise from our lips. Praise from our fingers. Praise from our lives. We give Him praise because we recognize that His goodness is manifested in His providence. The goodness of God. Praise the Lord. 
Praise the Lord, he says. Now notice, as we think about the response, first we rejoice, secondly we praise. Notice how he says it that we're supposed to be, in other words, lavish in our praise. It's not something we just mumble with downcast eyes and go meekly along our, along our way. We are to be lavish in our praise of God. Notice how the psalmist says it. He says we praise Him with the heart. And he says we praise Him with the psaltery. And he says we praise Him with an instrument of ten strings. We are to be lavish in our praise of God. And I believe this morning that too many times God's children fail to be lavish in our praise of Him the way He delights that His children will respond. Let's be lavish in our praise to Him. Our response is that we should be lavish in praise. And more than that, the psalmist says that as we respond to Him with praise, not only are we to be lavish, but we are to be creative in our praise to Him. You see, the praise to God, because He's a God who has infinitude, because He is a God who is vast and majestic and infinite beyond our ability to comprehend, He delights in us being creative in our praise to Him. And certainly some cautions must be, must be stated there. But let's be creative in our praise to Him. The psalmist says in verse 3, We are to sing to Him a new song. We delight in the hymns of Zion. There are so many wonderful old hymns. And sometimes I think we don't sing the old hymns enough. But let's remember that God wants us always, in whatever age we live, to be creative in our praise to Him. Let's remember that new hymns are good too. New hymns will bless His people. And so let's just think about the fact that God wants us to be creative. You might have creative genes in you that you don't know of. And God wants you to exercise them as you sing praises to Him. As you praise Him in whatever way that you're able to do. Being creative in our praise to Him. There's a couple of other things that the psalmist mentions here. In verse 3, he says that in our praise we're to be skillful and we're to be loud. To be skillful and we're to be loud. And in verse 1, he says that we're to be comely and we're to be upright in our praise to Him. I think those are cautionary words that the psalmist gives us. Be comely and be upright. Remember, He is an awesome God that we serve. He is a God that is worthy of our reverence. If we can just catch a glimpse of the majesty of this great God that we serve, this good God that we serve, we will be reverent as we approach Him in our praises to Him. Be skillful and loud, be comely and upright. Perhaps it's time for me to give you a bit of a working definition of the word providence. Providence just means, and this is just a working man's definition, it's not a theological definition. I didn't give you a theological definition yesterday as I spoke about a little bit about grace. I'm not going to do that as I speak about God's providence. This is a working definition, but it just means God's continual care over His creation. God's continual care over His creation. That is what we mean 
when we use the word providence. And I didn't look this up for sure this morning, but I'm rather confident of this fact that the word providence is not in Scripture. I could be corrected on that. If you, if you know otherwise, that's great. And you can, you're very welcome to tell me that. But, but providence is just, a, it's just a word that I'm using this morning to simply define or describe the best we can what we mean when we think about God being good in His continual care over the universe. There are five principles that I'd like to hold before you as we think about God's providence over our universe. And I'm going to turn to those, and you might want to do this too, because it's a good exercise as we think about His goodness being manifested in His providence. I'm going to turn, first of all, to Psalms 145. And I'll wait just a moment till you get there. But Psalms 145... Verses 9 through 17. We're going to do some turning to Scripture as we think about God's manifestation of His goodness in His providence. Psalms 145, verse 9. And the statement that I'd like to make, the point that I'd like to make here is that God's providence is unlimited. God's providence is unlimited. Verse 9. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all His works. All thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom, and talk of thy power, to make known to the sons of men His mighty acts and the glorious majesty of His kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The Lord upholdeth all that fall, and raiseth up all those that be bowed down. The eyes of all wait upon thee. Thou givest them their meat in due season. Thou openest thine hand, and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and holy in all his works. Now the psalmist is describing for us here, in these nine verses, the fact that the providence of God is unlimited. It is unlimited. As the, as the providence of God is manifest to us in a variety of ways. The psalmist says, the Lord is good to all. And the Lord is righteous in all His ways. And the Lord is holy in all His works. Is there any limit there? Certainly there's not. The providence of God, the goodness of God, manifested in His providence, is infinite. That's point number one. Point number two. While the goodness of God, manifested in His providence, is infinite, yet God respects the variety there. He makes a difference there, as His goodness is enacted upon the earth. I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 14 for a couple of verses. Acts chapter 14, and the verses we want are verses 16 and 17. These are the words of the Apostle Paul. It's actually the words of Barnabas and Paul, but Paul was the chief speaker. Barnabas and Paul speaking here. And they had encountered individuals who were sacrificing to idols. They were encountering individuals 
who were involved in pagan worship. And they spoke to them words like this, beginning at the latter part of verse 15 of Acts chapter 14, God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways, nevertheless, He left not Himself without witness in that He did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And the point the Apostle is making here is the fact that while God's goodness is unlimited, yet He chooses to use that goodness in a variety of ways. In this account, He reminds those pagan individuals that the God of goodness, this God who is good, He's in time past, He suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. And yet, though He was suffering all nations to walk in their own ways, yet He chose out a people simply because of His goodness. And that was the children children of Israel, the children of Jacob. Because of His goodness, He made that distinction and He chose those individuals. And the Bible says in this account, He did good. And He gave them a variety of gifts from His providence. Rain, fruitful seasons, and so forth, filling their hearts with food and gladness. Point number three. The goodness of God manifested in His providence does this. It focuses on His eternal purposes. Let's turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Focuses on His eternal purposes. That's God's real focus. Ephesians 1 verse 8. Four verses. He hath abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence having made known unto us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in Him, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things, after the counsel of His own will. There's a lot of meat there in that passage. A lot of things to meditate on and chew on and to be blessed with the meal that God provides us there in that passage. But the point is, we can see His eternal purposes emphasized here. And the Bible says clearly, it's according to His good pleasure. According to His good pleasure, you'll find those words in verse 9. So point number three, the goodness of God manifested in His providence is that it focuses on His eternal purposes. The fourth point that I'd like to make as I think about the principles of God's providence is this, that His goodness manifested in His providence really confounds and mystifies humanity. Confounds and mystifies humanity. Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Four verses here. This is really an utterance of praise from the, pens of, from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Romans eleven thirty-three says like this, Oh, the depth of the riches, 
both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. He's speaking about God's goodness to us. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been His counselor? Or who hath first given to Him? And it shall be recompensed unto Him again. For of Him, and through Him, and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's the goodness of God. And the response of individuals who have recognized the goodness of God, the fourth point was that the goodness of God manifests in His providence, mystifies humanity. It just confounds and confuses the carnal mind. Point number five. The goodness of God, this is the fifth principle, the goodness of God is provided so that we might be led to Him. To be led to Him. Flip back to that 33rd Psalm. And the psalmist in that psalm emphasizes the fact that this principle is true. The goodness of God is manifest in His providence so that we might be led to Him. Beginning in verse 20, the Bible says in Psalms 33, Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in Him, because we have trusted in His holy name. Let Thy mercy, O Lord, be upon us, according as we hope in Thee. You see, the goodness of God, God's goodness, manifest in His providence, is provided for us so that we might have our focus drawn to Him, so that we might be led to Him. The goodness of God, so that we might be led to Him. Five principles exhibited in Scripture concerning God's providence and His goodness in His providence as it's manifested to us. Number one, it is unlimited. Number two, it respects differences. Number three, it focuses on His eternal purposes. Number four, it mystifies humanity. And number five, it leads us to Him. The goodness of God manifested in His providence. Now I want to go to Romans chapter 2. And I want us to understand this morning that this God who is good manifests His goodness to us in His promises. We're not going to spend a lot of time here in Romans chapter 2 at the onset, but we hope to come back here in just a little while. This passage says, the question is asked in Romans 2 verses 1 through 4, in verse 4, Despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Is that the kind of response that we're going to give Him? Because He's a God who is good? Because He has manifest His goodness to us in His providence? Because we see evidence of His goodness on every hand? Is that the kind of response that we're going to give? God's goodness manifested in His promises. Well, when I think about the promises of God, I think about another word that's given to us in Scripture, and that is the word covenant. And there's a variety of covenants given in the Word of God. And I can present to you a list of what all I think are the covenants of God in Scripture. I'm not going to do that in its entirety, But I'm going to say that there are certain covenants that I consider at least 
to be major covenants. Major covenants. And I'm going to refer to five of them. We have the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God gave to Noah. We have the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that God gave to Abraham. We have the Mosaic covenant that God gave to Moses. We have the Davidic covenant that God gave to David. And we have the New Covenant. The, God, the covenant that God gave a long time ago, speaking about the time when His Son would come from heaven and provide a remedy for the sins of a wretched and undone human race. So I want to just focus for a little bit on those five covenants. I'm not necessarily going to ask you to turn to each of these, but the Noahic covenant is given to us in Genesis chapter 9. And this is given, this covenant was given to Noah and to his sons and their wives. Noah had found grace, the Bible says, in the sight of the Lord. Noah was a good man. He recognized the goodness of God. And because Noah found favor in the sight of God, Noah was instructed to build an ark, the Bible says, to the saving of his household. And he did. And it took many, many years to get this ark built. And the people mocked him and ridiculed him as he was building the ark. But because God is good, He provided this haven for Noah and his family to enter. And Noah and his family entered the ark. God shut the door and it began to rain. Not only did it begin to rain, but the Bible says the fountains of the earth were broken up. The fountains of the deep. And a great flood of water covered the entire earth. All of the earth. This was not a localized flood. This was a global flood. The waters covered the earth. And the Bible says that Noah and his family floated there on the waters for quite a lengthy period of time. Finally, God opened the ark. The door of the ark. God allowed them to come out of the ark. The door was opened and they came out of the ark. And about the first thing that Noah did was that he built an altar and he offered a sacrifice to the God who was good. And God recognized again. And he knew this already, but it was evidenced by the response from Noah. And God, and, and God recognized Noah's desire to worship him. Noah gave a sacrifice and God gave a covenant to Noah. And the covenant, in essence, was this. God said, I will no more bring a flood of waters upon the earth to cover all the face of the earth. And when God gave that covenant to Noah, God gave him a sign. And that sign is the bow that God placed in the heavens. That's the rainbow. And every time we look at that beautiful rainbow, every time we look at it, we think about God being good. God is good. When you look at the rainbow, you think about God being good. God gave that token. God gave that sign of the Noahic covenant for the reason that men might recognize that He is good. God is good, manifest in His promises. Promises. The second covenant that I referenced a bit ago was the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant was a covenant that God gave to Abraham. You'll recall the life of Abram. The Bible says that he dwelt in Ur of the Chaldees. God called him out of there. 
led him to the land of Haran. Then God told him to go into a land that he would show him of. And Abraham stepped out in faith. Abram stepped out in faith. And he came down to the land of Canaan. And he traversed the land. And God gave to Abraham a covenant. God told him, and you'll find this covenant in Genesis chapter 12. You'll find it referenced also in Genesis chapter 15. You'll find it referenced later on as well in the book of Genesis. But God pronounced a blessing upon Abraham. And in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abram, He said, I will bless them that bless thee, and I will curse them that curse thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now that's a promise. That is a promise of blessing, and it's because God is good. God gave the covenant to Abram, changed his name to Abraham as a result of this, and the covenant was that Abram, or Abraham, would be a blessing, not only to his own household, not only to his own family, but in all the nations of the earth, the Bible says, thou shalt be blessed. And God said, I will bless them that bless thee. And curse them that curse thee. God pronounced a blessing upon Abraham because he was good. And he pronounced that blessing upon all the families of the earth. Now, let's uh, move quickly to Moses and the Mosaic Covenant. When I think about the Mosaic Covenant, I think about the 20th chapter of the Exodus. The 20th chapter of the Exodus gives to us in the forepart of that chapter the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments largely say like this, Thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. Those expressions are made over and over again in the Ten Commandments. And it might be a bit difficult to see in those thou shalt nots the goodness of God. But let me give you assurance this morning that God said thou shalt not because He is a God who is good. His promises are meant to be to us for good. The God, who is, the God who is good, giving His promise to Moses. Now I want you to turn with me in the book of Exodus to the 33rd chapter of Exodus. The 33rd chapter of Exodus. Moses is still on the mount where he received the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And I want you to notice Moses' desire... As he encountered the God who was good on the mountainside. As he went up to the top of the mountain and he encountered this God who was good, the God who because of his goodness manifests his goodness to us in his promises. Notice Moses' desire in verse 13 of Exodus 33. Moses says in the middle part of that verse, he says, Show me now thy way. He's speaking to God. He's communing with Him. This God who is good. He says, show me now thy way. Verse 18. He has a different expression. He says, show me thy glory. Show me thy way and show me thy glory. And how did God respond to him? How did God respond to Moses? Verse 19. God speaking. I will make all my goodness Pass before thee, I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious to him, to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Moses asked for God to show him his glory, 
God responded, I'll show you my goodness. God didn't show him his glory. Moses could not have seen the glory of God and lived. The Bible makes that clear. We cannot see the the glory of God because it's so glorious that human eyes could never behold it. Human flesh could never stand in His presence. Moses wanted to see the glory of God. God said, I will show you my goodness. I will show you my goodness. And you know how it is, how it was. He had Moses there in the cleft of the rock. And he put his hand over him, and he passed by. And as he passed by, he took away his hand. Moses saw his backside. Moses saw enough of the glory of God. The Bible says that his face radiated with glory. The Bible speaks to us of that in the third chapter, I believe, of 2 Corinthians, perhaps. As well in the, as, as in the um, Pentateuch. But the Bible does say that God, when Moses requested that he would be shown his glory, God responded, I will show you my goodness. Chapter 34, verse 6. The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed. These are the words of God. The Lord God, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. This is the God who is good. Abundant in goodness and in truth and mercy and grace and long-suffering come right along with that. These are all a part of the goodness of God. Well, the Mosaic Covenant and the goodness that was manifest in the promises that God gave to Moses. Covenant number four. I'm spending too much time here. Sorry. Covenant number four. The Davidic Covenant. The covenant God gave to David. You'll recall how this happened. The prophet came down to the house of Jesse, and he was instructed to anoint one of the sons of Jesse. And Jesse had his seven oldest sons there, and he set them before the prophet one by one. And God spoke to the prophet and says, No, 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 to every one of them, all seven of those. And the prophet, I suppose, was somewhat confused until he asked Jesse a question. He said, Do you have yet another son? And Jesse said, well, yes, I do. I have my youngest son. And the Bible says he was just a lad. He was ruddy. He had been out on the hillsides, out in the fields, keeping the flock. And that's where he was when the prophet had come to anoint him. And so the prophet said, well, you call him. And Jesse sent and called his youngest son, David. And the prophet was spoken to by God. And God said, this is the one that I want you to anoint. And so he did. Samuel anointed David. And God gave a covenant to David. He gave a covenant of promise to David. And the Bible speaks of it in a variety of places. The place I went to this morning was in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 as I thought about this Davidic covenant. And I'm going to paraphrase this a bit. But God speaking to, actually God is speaking to the prophet Nathan in the 17th chapter of 1 Chronicles to David. And David had wanted to build a temple for God. And God told him, no, you're not going to build a temple for me. But what I'm going to do is that I'm going to raise up a house for you. And so to paraphrase the truths that are found in 1 Chronicles chapter 17 in the Davidic covenant, God says in essence, He says, I'm going to raise, I'm going to reinforce, I'm going to establish relationship, and I'm going to reward you for your faithfulness. 
This is what God said to David through the prophet Nathan. The goodness of God being manifest to David in the covenant of promise. Manifested in the promises of God. Covenant number five. This is the new covenant. The new covenant. And you can find it as well in multiple places in scripture. You'll find it referenced in the book of Ezekiel. You'll find it referenced in the book of Hebrews. But I'm thinking this morning about the statements made in Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning with verse 31. And this clearly says that it's the covenant that God is making in those days. It's a new covenant. And the new covenant is going to be written on the hearts of His people. It's going to be implanted in their minds. It's not a covenant that's given on tables of stone. And the Bible says there in Jeremiah chapter 31, concerning this new covenant, as God gives this covenant, He says, They shall say no more every man to his neighbor, every man to his brother. I should turn there. It's Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34, I believe that I was trying to quote, They shall say no more to every man his neighbor, and to every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. Now, did I quote that correctly? They shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and will remember their sin no more. Now, this says that all men are going to know Him. All of those who respond. It's not limited, as the Bible limited it. In the time of Abraham to his seed, in the time of David to those of his reign, in the time of Moses to those of the seed of Jacob, it is not limited. But the Bible says that everyone who wants to respond to this covenant, given by the God who is good, shall know Him. And they won't speak to their neighbor and to their brothers and sisters, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know Me. He says, And I will forgive their iniquities, And remember them against them no more. Doesn't that sound like a God who is good? Can't you just see the goodness of God evidenced there in that new covenant? Certainly this morning we can. Now I wanted to spend a little bit of time before we moved away from here in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And I know it's kind of painful to read some of these passages. But Romans chapter 2 verses 1 through 4 is given to us within the context of the fourth part of the book of Romans, where the the Apostle Paul, speaking inspired by the Spirit of God, the words of God, this God who is good, Paul is writing about God's condemnation of humanity, God's condemnation of sin. He speaks about God's condemnation of the pagan world. He speaks about God's condemnation of the Jewish world. And finally, he speaks about God's condemnation of the entire world. God's condemnation of sin, pronounced upon first the pagan world, then the Jewish world, and finally the entire world. Now, the Bible says something here in the latter part of the book of Romans. We referred to it briefly yesterday, I think it was. But the Bible says that that when God saw... When God saw the wickedness on the earth, He responded. And, and, you know, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but one of the things that God saw, beginning in verse 21, down through verse 23 of Romans chapter 1, 
One of the things that God saw was, the Bible says, neither were thankful in the middle of verse 21. They knew God. They wouldn't glorify Him. They knew this God. He was good. Yet they would not glorify Him. And God says they were filled with ingratitude. Ingratitude. And so the Bible says in verse 24, God gave them up to uncleanness. Verses 24 and 25 speaks to us about the immorality that existed as a result of their ingratitude and how God gave them up. The immorality that existed there. And so verse 26 says, For this cause God gave them up. Again, the same statement that we found in verse 24 is found in verse 26. Then the account goes on and it speaks about other conditions that begin to arise in the hearts of men. And it describes to us the implacability of the human heart. As God had given them up, given them up, and God had given them up, they eventually became implacable. They resorted. They resorted to homosexuality and a variety of sins. And God gave, the Bible says in verse 28, because they did not like to retain Him in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Now this is the context in which Romans 2 comes to us. And the latter part of chapter 1 describes 22 different conditions that resulted because of the choice that men and women made against this God who is good. Okay, now that's not a very pleasant picture. Romans chapter 2 tells us about how God is speaking to individuals who had hearts that were hard, hearts that were impenitent, hearts who were treasuring up unto themselves wrath against the day of wrath and, and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And the Bible says that because they did not obey the truth, because they were contentious, but because they obeyed unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, then these words were spoken to them. I lifted those expressions out of verse 5 and verse 9 of Romans chapter 2. God speaks through Paul and he speaks these words. And he says, Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The riches of goodness. The Bible doesn't say just that God is good. The Bible speaks in Romans 2 verse 4 about the very riches of His goodness. This speaks to us about His abundance, His lavishness, His abundant blessing in His goodness that He delights to share with the children of men. The Bible tells us here in this verse that individuals, individuals who reject, who reject the goodness of God the Bible says that they are really despising this God who is good. Do you despise the riches of His goodness? Those who reject are guilty of despising the God who offers and proffers goodness to us. To reject means to despise. Another point that I'd like to make here, that it is from God's goodness. It's because of God's goodness that we find the means and avenue of repentance. It's simply because God is good that we can repent. And the Bible says here, 
It doesn't say that God is going to drive you to repentance. There's not going to be a lightning bolt come down from heaven and drive you to repentance. Now God works in a variety of ways. And of course your mind might have gone to the man Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road. But God deals in a variety of ways. And the Bible says in verse 4 of Romans chapter 2 that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance. God is drawing you. God is drawing all of us. God is drawing your peers, your family, because He is a God who is good and He is leading us to repentance. I can stand here this morning and testify that it's because the God who is good drew me, because He led me, that I found grace in His sight and I I became a new creature in Christ. I remember how it happened. And I had put off for a long time making that choice. I had spurned Him. Brother Shane said last evening, he knew that when he was converted, it was his last chance. And I don't know if it was my last chance or not, but I know that I had spurned God way too many times. Finally, at the age of 24 years, I began to seek Him. I had heard Him call to me before, and I had not responded the way He wanted me to respond. And so I began to seek Him. I began to read His Word. I told you about that a day or two ago. Finally, I got down. I decided that really, I've just, got to, I've just got to hear Him calling me. And I began to pray. And I pled with Him. God, show me You're real. Show me that You think I'm worthy of salvation. Show me that You want me in Your kingdom. Let me feel that. And after many, many prayers like that, after seeking Him, the Bible says that we're to ask, we're to seek, we're to knock. Ask and seek and knock. And the Bible says, if you ask, you'll receive. If you seek Him, you'll find Him. And if you knock, the door of salvation will be opened. And so I began to seek Him. And eventually God responded. And I saw the God who was good. And I'm so thankful this morning that I saw the God who was good. And I'm so thankful this morning that when I called out to Him and requested water baptism, when I called out to Him and invited Him into my heart, that was a real and authentic conversion. I knew it to be real. And certainly I've grown in grace since that time. And I'm continuing to grow in grace. And I hope I never stop growing in grace. But it was real. It was authentic. When I called out to Him and I saw this God who is good. His goodness manifested in His providences. God's goodness is endless. I'm just going to give you a couple of scriptures here. Psalm 52 verse 1. The psalmist says, The goodness of God endureth continually. The goodness of God endureth continually. That means it's unending. The goodness of God is endless in time. Endless in time. Just hold on to that thought for a moment. The goodness of God is endless in time. Psalm 16.2 O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, My goodness extendeth not to thee. The psalmist says that our goodness, any goodness that we have, that you have, that I have, young people, old people, any goodness that we have will not reach God. It will not extend to Him. Any goodness that we have will not extend to Him. The psalmist says again in verse 16, verse 2, O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, My goodness extendeth not to thee. Now, because our goodness will not reach Him, 
The Bible says that God's endless goodness reaches down to us. That's the way the goodness of God works. It reaches down to us. We can't reach up to Him, but He can reach down to us. The goodness of God reaching down to Him. I'm going to quote a verse in James 1.17 where the Bible says that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variables, variableness, neither shadow of turning. Every good gift cometh down. God reaches down to save wretched and lost humanity. He lifts us up out of that horrible pit. He sets our feet upon the rock and He establishes our going. And more than that, the Bible says, He puts a new soul in our heart. Even praise to our God. Because we have recognized that the God who is good reached down and lifted us up and established our feet. Set our feet upon the rock and established our way before Him. God who is good. His endless goodness Reaches down. Now we said earlier, as we looked at Psalm 52.1, that the goodness of God, which endures continually, speaks about His goodness being endless in time. I want to say something else now. The goodness of God, who is this goodness of God that is infinite, is also endless in its supply. Not only endless in its in time, but it's endless in its supply. That means it's never exhausted. Never will be exhausted. As God imparts goodness to us, His goodness is never diminished. Never diminished as God blesses us with goodness. The goodness of God is to be exhibited in our lives. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, concerning this, that the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Goodness. Goodness. A part of the fruit of the Spirit. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 9, concerning the fruit of the Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit, and this is a parenthetical expression found in, in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 9, the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. All of the fruit of the Spirit is in goodness and righteousness and truth. The goodness of God manifested in His promises. Now, I haven't left enough time here, but I want to speak just a moment about God's goodness being manifested in His power. And really, to help you understand what I mean when I say the goodness of God is manifested in His power, I want to just change that word a little bit and say that the goodness of God is manifested is in His empowerment. In His empowerment as He empowers us. That's the kind of power that I'm thinking about, the goodness of God being manifest in His power. Now, in first, the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, the Bible says in verse 12, well, first of all, verse 11. Verse 11 speaks about the fact that God has a work that is being done. And the Bible speaks about this work being a work of power, or being a work done with power. And finally, and then in verse 12, Paul says that this powerful, good work of God is to be done in you. That Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. 
That's the phraseology used by the Apostle. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 12, this powerful good work of God being done in you. Being done in you. Okay, there are some specific instructions in this passage. First of all, the Bible says in verse 7, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7, the Bible says these are instructions given to us, there's four of them at least, that is that we are to rest in the goodness of God. We are to rest in Him. You are troubled, and certainly we have troubles. You have troubles. I had troubles when I was young. And you know what? My troubles didn't all leave me when I was young. I've had troubles in middle age. I've had troubles all through my life. We have troubles. But we serve a God who is endless and infinite, who is boundless in His supply to us. We serve a God who is willing and ready to bless us. And so, even though we're troubled, as the Apostle Paul says one time, on every hand, yet we are invited to rest in Him. To you who are troubled, rest with us. Then he goes on and describes what's going to happen in the future when the Lord Jesus is revealed. And in flaming fire, He's going to take vengeance. And there's going to be individuals who are punished. And there's going to be a provision made for His children when He says He's going to come and be glorified in His saints. Being glorified in His saints. Well, first of all, we ought to rest. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we faint not, though our outward man perish, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. Our light affliction, which is for, which is for a moment, worketh in us a far more exceeding and a an abundant weight of eternal glory. Far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's what God is wanting to do in us if we'll just rest in the promises of His empowerment. Point number two, as we think about specific instructions in this passage, is that we are to be enabled. I'm just going to give you those, and I'm not going to, to spend any time on these, but we are to be enabled. Verse 11 speaks about the fact that God wants to count us worthy. That means He wants to enable us. Point number three is that we're to be filled. We're to be filled full. The Bible says in verse 11 that He wants to fulfill. He wants to fulfill in us the good pleasure of His goodness. Point number four is that we are, we are to allow Christ to be glorified in us. Verse 12 speaks about that fact that Jesus Christ might be glorified in you. It is the specific ministry of the Holy Spirit to make this happen. To work this out in our lives. The Bible says, as Jesus left the earth, just before, just before His ascension, He told those disciples, He said, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And then He goes on and He restates that great commission. He says, you shall be witnesses unto Me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in the uttermost parts of the earth. You shall receive power. The goodness of God that provides empowerment to us. You shall receive power. That's the specific promise of the Holy Spirit indwelling His children. Well, this God who is good has good pleasure in you. The Bible says in verse 11, Not only is Christ glorified in us, but verse 12 says that we are also glorified in Him. Verse 11 says... This goodness of God is manifested in His power to us as a result of the work of faith. 
It's the work of faith, verse 11. Okay, God is good. God is good, the Bible says. His goodness is manifested in His providence. It's manifested in His promises. It's manifested to us in His power indwelling within us. God never wavers in His desire to exhibit His goodness to us. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. He will not vary from His goodness. He will, there's no shadow of turning by God from the fact, from the, from the attribute of His goodness to us. His goodness, we are invited in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. I'll not go there, but we are invited in Romans 11, verse 22, to behold the goodness, and the apostle says, the severity of God. But we're invited to behold the goodness of God and to continue in it. Two specific instructions, to behold it and to continue it. I want to just close with a hymn that we find in the, in the hymn books we've been singing out of. This is a hymn penned by Henry Washburn, number 508 in Songs of Faith and Praise, and it goes like this. It says, Let every heart rejoice and sing. Let choral anthems rise. Ye aged men and children, bring to God your sacrifice. He bids the sun to rise and set. In heaven His power is known, and earth, subdued to Him, shall yet bow low before His throne. For He is good, the Lord is good, and kind are all His ways, with songs and honors sounding loud, the Lord Jehovah prays. While the rocks and the rills, while the vales and the hills, a glorious anthem raise, let each prolong the grateful song. And the God of our fathers praise. And the God of our fathers praise. Dear ones, this morning, embrace this all-important truth concerning the attributes of God, that God is good. God bless you.